0: Hello and welcome to the Back Half the New Statesman's culture podcast with me Tom and me Kate. We were just talking about how woefully unwoke <laughs> uh, our uh, our political radar is uh, in one of the early uh, podcasts uh, back in September last year uh, in the series we went to see Morrissey and you might remember it was a it was a gig he did made a for the BBC and uh, even if you didn't hear it you probably kind of encountered the sort of social media storm afterwards, because he made some very like offhand and sort of slightly indecipherable comment. Didn't Poorly he? structured yeah. joke
1: about Anne Marie Waters.
0: Yeah, it was it was the it was one of the many UKIP leadership contests, and Anne Marie Waters hadn't got it, and he a, made a some, rigged vote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. People took this as an endorsement of her. She's a fairly dodgy anti-Islam campaigner.
1: She was the one that didn't Farage call her a fascist. Or yeah, she's
0: basically too too far right for, for UKIP.
1: So we were in this BBC studio and made a veil and and you know in the little bubble we were just thinking, what, what a wonderful creation Morrissey is. And we came out and there was this massive media shitstorm going on. And we are like, just let the man be free to make his art. That joke was harmless. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about it as much. On this podcast as well, and we said, you know, it's all been blown out of proportion. <laughs> it wasn't a, a far right comment at all.
0: Now, well, about a week ago, um, Morrissey came out with a kind of uh, self organised interview on his website, in which he not only an- endorsed Anne Marie Waters, but also endorsed the party that she formed in October last year called Full Britain. Yeah, so and it was part of a it was a long game. game. <laughs>
1: We thought it was a terrible overreaction and we briefly hated 2017 at that point <laughs> and modern modern people and phones and Twitter and everything. But yeah, we are the, the non-woke podcast, I'm afraid.
0: So today we are not going to be talking about Morrissey, but we are going to be talking about a rather extraordinary British debut film called Beast.
1: And we're going to be talking about a long-running radio four show called soul music which you may or may not have heard which is just i believe been moved slots as well so it's sort of slightly more accessible to you now if you're sort of listening to the radio after nine o'clock in the morning as a lot of people are and we will have the millionth because we've done a million of these podcasts have now. we we Amazing. have yeah um, celebration we'll have the millionth anniversary the uh, cultural event of some small significance uh, that took place at some point in the past
0: So Kate and I have just seen Beast, which was uh, reviewed by our film critic, Ryan Gilby in, in last week's magazine. Uh, it's a uh, debut feature film from uh, a British director called Michael Pierce, set on Jersey, very beautifully shot, starring uh, Jesse Buckley as Moll and Johnny Flynn as Pascal. These two kind of slightly disturbed lovers who come together at a time on the island where there's a serial killer, Um, or what appears to be a serial killer on the loose. And uh, the film plays with your expectations and assumptions about these two characters and about the community at large. It's very disturbing and completely gripping.
1: He thinks you're the man that's been killing those girls.
0: Do you think it's me?
1: away from me. What the fuck do you want from me? I want you to tell me that you didn't do it. I lied for you. I said we were together that night and I need to know I did it for the right reason.
0: Yeah, well, you don't need to lie for me anymore. I'll get through
1: this by myself. Oh, God, I don't understand you. How can you ask me that? I love you and you're asking me that.
0: So that was Johnny Flynn and Jesse Buckley in Beast. Johnny Flynn... Having a, a second career or a mm. or a, another part
1: to his career, anyway. My mother is in her late sixties and she's used up all the data on her phone, watching clips of Johnny Flynn because she really fancies him. <laughs> <laughs> He's thirty five, and she didn't. She couldn't work out why her her phone wasn't working anymore. She get really annoyed with it. Is it the internet connection? And my brother had to point out, No, you have used up all your data on YouTube. So Johnny Flynn is a folk singer and was a folk singer initially. He actually got a music scholarship to B Dales, and he wrote all the music for the Detectorists ah. series. So he wrote the entire soundtrack. Yeah. and he sings it's the theme. Nice music him. in that. As well. Very nice. And um, he also wrote the the music for a Globe production of As You Like It using Renaissance instruments. So the guy is like, he's a smart guy, and this is uh, one of his his sort of first lead roles. He did play the young Einstein. In um, one of those National Geographic genius series, ah, the one that that we've just had, Picasso. I noticed that you have the the new issue in front of you, in which we review the Picasso series, and I just noticed the caption on the picture of Antonio Banderas as Picasso. It just says "Endlessly Randy," <laughs> Antonio Banderas as Picasso. Yeah, so um, so yeah, my mother's had this fixation with him for a long time, but he is a, he's a very very watchable guy, and he's got um, sort of some interesting stuff going on with his face as well because he was savaged by a Staffordshire bull terrier when he was a little boy so he has scars Mm. from that and yeah very it's it's unusual to see someone make the transition from being a sort of very convincing folk singer to acting so so endlessly but I think he's been doing it for a few years.
0: He's got a very kind of weather-beaten look in this and his character is um, he's an outsider character his parents are absent and we kind of first encounter him as, as a sort of in a kind of woodsman role. He's got a, he's got a rifle and uh, rabbits in the back of, his, uh, back of his van or back of his car. And he rescues uh, Mole from the kind of unwanted attention of uh, a pretty, pretty sinister guy. The film's called Beast. And it's interesting when you see people writing about this, everyone like, picks up different fairy tales to like. I noticed Ryan refies, refers to her as a red riding hood. Yes. And the director talks to her about, about her as a Cinderella character. Because her home life is, she's very, very put upon. She's got this incredibly chillingly domineering mother. The
1: mother's like something out of a Michael Haneke film, right? Yeah, and
0: she's like a wicked stepmother yeah, as well, isn't she? Totally steely, yeah. repressed
1: mother who obviously fancies her boyfriend, <laughs> which is brilliant. Did you and think? I thought so. And every move, every moment that the mother makes to try and um, stop Mole seeing this this new boy pushes Mole further towards the boy. So it's like a very kind of, it's an interesting um, examination of mother-daughter Dynamics as well, and the kind of mirroring that goes on there. I, I think, I mean, Ryan particularly points out its fairy tale quality as well. And I think I was wondering why it feels so much like a fairy tale. And it, it's incredibly solid and gripping, and it's got a kind of archetypal power about it. There's no technology we we're thinking about mm. this. There's, there's no modernity in it, mm. really. The pacing is perfect. The way that the romance um, develops. Given, you know, between these two people, it's, a lot of the film is given over to that sort of first two weeks of their relationship and the escalation of it. And it's the weather is incredible. It's it's summer. I don't know how they did this. But it's a very English summer, but it's also slightly more hyper real and beautiful than English summers really are. So she's always, even if it's four o'clock in the morning and she's walking through a forest, she's wearing a tiny little summer dress and she's covered in mud and she never looks cold. But they're not really like sweating in the sun either. So it's kind of, it had this very English quality, but almost sort of too good to be true somehow.
0: I love that scene when she's walking walking through the forest at four in the morning and it really captures that kind of uh, grainy a.m. 4am light. The other thing that makes it very fairy tale, I think, is um, well, as Ryan says, Red Riding Hood, her this red-headed heroine kind of instantly, you know, this kind of pale-skinned red-headed heroine instantly puts you in that place. But then what, when they use the kind of the earth, she comes back once to her pristine uh, house covered in mud and and kind of the mud under her her fingernails is kind of being rubbed off on this sort of perfect, perfectly cream sofa. And mud all around her mouth and stuff. She's kind of like she really kind of gets gets down and dirty in the Jersey mud. <laughs> I think the fact that it's set on Jersey as well gives it this kind of slightly far away quality. Um, I
1: love how they're not metropolitan youth who yes. you are trying to get out. They yeah. she works on what they call the granny wagons, the yeah. uh, the tour buses, giving old people tours of Jersey. And he's a handyman and stuff. And they're very rooted in Jersey social structures yeah. and Jersey life again, which yeah makes them feel sort of cut off from from what we usually see in films, in a way.
0: And the director, Michael Pierce, did grow up on Jersey. Ah, oh, did he? Yeah, so I think that's, that's lived. So and what
1: else has he done? Like, what's, what's his he, story?
0: He, took, he spent seven years making this film. No! Yeah, which kind of, when you see something like this, I mean, not I'm sort of almost encouraged that it took him seven years because it's the product of hard work as well as sort of genius, I think. But yeah, no, he, he grew up in Jersey and, and has talked about how it was quite a kind of different and stifling place to be. And then film school and then just kind of making commercials and short films and things. And the starting point for this, which you'll be interested in if you don't know about it already, was um, The Beast of Jersey. Do you know about this guy? I remember
1: remember that, yeah.
0: So he was a guy called Edward Paisnell, who was a serial rapist and paedophile. You're
1: just saying you'll be interested in that, Kate. you will. will. (laughs) It's right up my street. (laughs) <laughs>
0: There's no irony involved in that. I'm just stating a fact.
1: <laughs> Tell me more about the Beast of Jersey. He just
0: went. He just went on a kind of. He, he didn't murder anyone, but he went on this sort of terror spree. What era? Um, this is uh, late '60s, early '70s. I think he was arrested in 1971. And so Michael Pierce is about our age. But he said, even growing up in the '80s, I guess it would have been that was a kind of thing. You know that they were all very aware of. Um, so that was his starting point, but, um, I think as he as he wrote the film he kind of moved further away from the real the real life thing but he did become obsessed with serial killers he said he spent two summers in the library reading books about Bundy and all these all these serial killers
1: well in a small community as well that's the the, maybe that's this is why American serial killers have such sort of power in the popular imagination because if it's a small town Mm. it's just closer to you it's a fact like it is somewhere hovering around the periphery of your your life whereas in a big city it could be you know the, the guy could be anywhere I think that what's good about this is that for me the the sort of serial killer type violent subplot is is secondary to Mm. the romance and it's one of the most powerful kind of sexual chemistries I've seen on screen in recent years and I was trying to think about why that is and I think it's it captures that thing about relationships where it's not just two star-crossed lovers who happen to really get on it's what one brings out in the other and it's like a dance. You know, there's something, not, not giving anything away to say that she has a kind of a, a difficult past. There is a violent episode yeah. buried in her past. And she sees in his violence her own. And it's about a kind of power play between who is really the wild one. Yeah. And they, Ryan has this beautiful line in his film. He says they're constantly unnerving each other. Yeah. So they're, they're taking it in turns to be the one that distrusts the other one and kind of going away from each other and coming back. And that sense that she is. Activated by his roughness, and that helps her break out of her own prison that she's in with her family. So, really, it's kind of a very realistic portrayal of what a relationship can do, like how it can free you, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and they both have the perfect destabilizing mixture of, of vulnerability and, and violence and power. And uh, Mole, played by Jessie Buckley, I've I've only seen her in one thing, but she, she was in Taboo, which was the um, where I thought was kind of bonkers genius uh, Tom Hardy vehicle when I say vehicle it really was a Tom Hardy vehicle <laughs> um, but she plays a very kind of savvy smart high-class actress uh, figure completely different like totally self-assured so it's nice to see her range in this mm. I think that kind of relationship it's so much harder to get that with actors later on in their career I think because like as soon as they're established and then you're like assessing these two famous actors And do they have chemistry and you kind of, you really struggle to believe it. But when you've got two kind of young, reasonably untested actors, I think they can create something quite It's Yeah, it's quite a sort
1: of um, poignant moment to see them both act. She's in the Woman in White adaptation at the moment, which she's really good in um, by all accounts. And he is sort of at the start of his film career proper. And... You can imagine them trying to turn him into the new, like you know, the lead of the new McMaffin mm. series or something, yeah. and shave his shave his head, take him over to Hollywood, put him in a suit. Don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, he probably will do it, but he's—I don't know. He sounds like sort of quite an eccentric character in his own way. If he's writing music for crumhorns yeah. Yeah. and sackbutts, <laughs> so you kind of hope that he can. But yeah, you're right that because they're blank slates in the public eye, mm. there's just this, and they're not an obvious. Like, they are an obvious couple, but they're not as mm. well. You know, yeah. um, it's just—it's just really beautiful and i suppose the big question that it asks is like who's really the who's really the beast
0: so beast is in cinemas now and thoroughly recommended shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business like that let's put it online and see what happens stage and the site is live that we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage thanks you're all set that count it up and ship it around the globe stage this one's going to thailand and that Wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. So, Kate, I'm really grateful to you for bringing this program to my attention, Soul Music, which I, I learned now has been running since 2000 and I've somehow I've never... <laughs>
1: since stum- 1955, <laughs> like
0: Desert <laughs> Island days. Never stumbled across it on, uh, on Radio 4, but it's completely compelling. Can you remind me what it's about?
1: This is a, a long-running program that takes a song every week and explores the meaning of that song in the lives of two or three different speakers. There is no host... And um, Antonia Quirk has written about it for us this, this week because we, we just got intrigued about how it's made. Because what you notice is you're listening to, you know, an entire program given to God Only Knows, or something by the Beach Boys. And you've technically got ordinary people telling about their, their sort of relationships to this song. But they're not ordinary people. They're people with extraordinary experiences and extraordinary lives. And you just think, how on earth did they find them? How big is the team of people working on this program that's managed to pick out of the entire planet the most touching, the most moving stories? And so we, we asked Antonia to look into it a bit and um, we found out some very interesting things about its production. Such as? Such as there is only one producer on each show and that's it. Amazing. It's a staff of one. They are given So kind of
0: each show is effectively a labour of love. A labour of love yeah. of
1: one person yeah. who is only really allotted the three days work on it by the BBC. Wow. <laughs> and the longest one of these episodes took to make was five years. It took one of these producers five years to get together the material that they wanted on it on a Wagner piece. For which um, they
0: charged invoice to the BBC for three for days. For three days. <laughs> <laughs> and a bargain.
1: most of the the research is done trawling through uh wedding videos, personal blogs, Facebook to find the st- sort of most striking connections to particular very famous pieces of music, and then uh, maybe you know interviewing people over Skype or by iPhone when they're sort of stuck over on the other side of the world and then putting it all together but I mean what was your what why do you think it works so did well?
0: it's it's just such a it's just such a brilliant structure I think not having a host I think. What they do is really clever in that they do, they give you a little bit of kind of the story of the song because they often have maybe one of the voices is uh, someone with a genuine connection to the creation of the song. So, for instance, God Only Knows, they have Al Cooper, who was a musician in California at the time, um, who was kind of on the periphery, invited over to um, Brian Wilson's house with him. Uh, where he's playing his piano in the sandbox. <laughs> there's a brilliant bit in that where he just says, um, "Yeah, he's sitting there playing the piano in the sandbox in his living room. There's a soda fountain in there. You know, these are things that aren't in many people's living rooms. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of kind of inside information on, on the song. And then you just get these extraordinarily emotional stories from completely unexpected places and it's really beautifully edited as well. They're all they're all woven through. You get the song itself coming in and out. They might mix in a cover version or a sort of unexpectedly stripped down version or a demo version. But they never give you any. And I've seen on online this has annoyed a couple of people. But there's no information on what they're what they're playing. You know, on one of the classical ones, someone was saying, "I want to know what version this is." But it's just it's not about that at all. It's about the resonances these songs have for people. I wonder maybe. For the, maybe we should just say for the, so for example, for the, if we're talking about the God Only Knows ones, you've got Al Cooper, you've got a woman talking about uh, how much it meant to her parents, which is quite a, a quiet story in a way, um, and how it was the connection, how it was sort of the glue between her parents. Then you've got this um, Christian couple, don't you? Young which, Missionaries yeah.
1: out in Burundi, um, and the producer of this show, Nicola Humphreys, found a wedding video on a a 3am trawl uh, of the internet of of this couple dancing to God only knows and manages somehow to find out that they're actually two missionaries who met and fell in love and obviously, you know, took their relationship in a certain, a very religious manner. (laughs) They met, so they had a walk together and and they told each other that they, um, they would possibly like to spend their lives together. And then the young woman, Ruth went off to swim in a local lake and she asked God whether Claude was the man that she was supposed to spend her life with. He said yes. So she went back to Claude and said, you know, And now they're a missionary couple working over there. And their relationship, of course, to God Only Knows is such a literal interpretation of the lyric. It's yes. that beautiful thing where yeah. it leaves the hands of the, the writer of the original songs. And it literally is about, well, God said this is OK. Yeah. Therefore, we're going to dance to this at our wedding.
0: And And also the sort of comfort of, you know, she speaks with sort of great happiness about the fact that the song symbolises everything being in God's hands, yes
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, it made me think a bit about um, the special relationship that we have to radio, in particular Radio 4, which is that it's sort of on in the room, you're getting on with stuff and you kind of come in and out. And for that reason, it can be very irritating um, in that you kind of catch snatches of programs and you want to know what's going on and I had this I had quite difficult relationship with soul music for a long time because it it annoyed me the way the songs faded in and out for two or three seconds and I was trying to kind of I was trying to follow something and I found it difficult Mm. to follow and it just made me think about how it turns us into like grumpy old people shouting at the radio because in a way we're so invested in it we know these programs are fantastic Mm. it's a bit like The Long View you know um, on I think it's on Tuesdays. it compares to Uh, something from the the present day to a a thing of historical import, and it it draws these parallels between them. So there was a great programme recently comparing driverless cars to the railway boom of the 1830s, and it's absolutely immaculate. It's a beautifully done programme, apart from the fact that they always get a trained actor to read out the official documentation of the time in a very dramatic Simon Callow-esque voice. And so you're kind of throwing things at the radio, going, oh, why are you putting that silly voice on? This is a great show. And I had that with soul music. I thought, like, why why are you playing such short clips? Who are mm, these people? Mm. And then I realised um, there was a particular episode where I remained in the kitchen for the entire time mm. because of how gripping the story was. And it was an episode on Boys Don't Cry by The Cure. And it was the writer Purna Bell talking about her relationship with her husband, the journalist Rob Bell. And she started right at the beginning, total like blank sheet of paper. And she described the way they were set up on a date and the the way he wasn't the kind of person she imagined she would like. And you were gripped thinking it's a love story. And then over the time in their marriage, uh, she realized that he had suffered terribly from depression. Three years into the marriage, he told her he had a heroin habit. They ended up breaking up despite sort of working on the marriage for ages and then he eventually committed suicide. And I remember just standing in the kitchen listening to this song with Boys Don't Cry coming in and out and I had to literally go and redo my eye makeup because I was crying so much. And I thought, ah, that's why Soul Music's a really good program. So you've got to give it time and you've got to stay in one place while you're listening. It's not background
0: listening. No. It's it's irritating background listening. And it's interesting because I think on paper half an hour seems too long for it. I think, you know, you can imagine a producer being pitched this and say, well, that's a 15 minute, you know, that's a 15 yeah. minute show. But actually the half an hour gives gives them the room to kind of develop, tell these these full stories. And the way they get these people to open up is incredible really. And there are, it's interesting because in that episode and, and in several others as well, there's, there's often one story in there which isn't explicitly linked to the song so a lot of the stories either at the beginning or the end they make you know it's and this and this song helped me because helped me through this because of x y or z for instance in that boys don't cry one there's a there's a british athlete who describes you know moving in a different way but um uh, his sort of last chance at the olympics and uh, he has this horrible injury and he can't make it Th- for the next sort of 200 metres or whatever. And he just ends up breaking down, crying. And his dad comes down to like comfort him. But there's no, he's not saying, and that's why I love the Cure song. Like, he doesn't mention it. I'd forgotten it. It's just, all about that it's story. Just, it's just <laughs> the, the producer or whoever has decided that this is something that perfectly illustrates the the theme of the song, which it, which it, which it does. Didn't his dad um,
1: walk him to the finishing line or something as well? Uh, it was something really...
0: Everyone is, everyone's trying to stop him, basically, oh. saying, like, you don't need to do this. He's, like, pulled his hamstring or yeah. something. He's obviously in terrible pain and is limping through the last, you know, determined through some sort of misguided idea that he has to finish it. The breadth of stories is, uh, is really wonderful. And then you get some that have a kind of a genuine, you know, I listened to the one on uh Sam Cook's a change is gonna come. Um and um so that's a politically very, very important song. So you get personal stories there, but but um you also get a bit of bit more of the kind of political context and you hear from Sam Cook's brother. I mean, how do they get all these people? I don't you know, know they just get Sam Cook's brother.
1: On no budget. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um maybe this is why some of them take five years, but you know, Antonia points out that they don't use archive material. So which is must make life much more difficult for them. You know, doing God Only Knows, I bet they could have dug up clips of Brian Wilson or whoever, but but they insist on kind of going to these people fresh. So
1: What was the... In Antonia's um, piece, she talks about Frankie Valli um, talking about singing um, one of his songs to a load of Vietnam vets. Oh, yeah. I have a feeling it was Can't Take My Eyes Off You. And he'd never told this story before. And if it was that song... That very scene appears in The Deer Hunter. I mean, it's before they've gone off to Vietnam, but it's the it's the last night before Christopher Walken and Robert De Niro go off to Vietnam. Right. And it's one of the most kind of gutting moments in the film because everyone's been drinking all night and Christopher Walken has sung this this song while he's playing pool. And then everybody just stands around and like stares into their glasses thinking <laughs> like, tomorrow we go over the top. So it's an amazing kind of match of... of Fact and fiction mm. that Valley actually sang it to a load of Vietnam veterans mm. when they came back and they were still in their uniform. I mean, when in terms of finding these stories from from ordinary people, that's what made me sort of it reminded me of uh, the Desert Island Discs episodes where they choose people who are not well known.
0: Yeah,
1: it's just that kind of needle in a haystack thing in terms of production. How do they start when they don't know the s- story is there? How do they pick that unknown person and or you know that sort of non-famous person mm. and and find these life stories. And again, that's why I thought it must have a huge team of people working on it. And to think that it's one person. I know. It's just.
0: It speaks also to this idea of, you know, which we tried to um, uh, tap into a little bit in, um, in the Christmas issue of the new Statesman that we worked on, where we asked writers and various NS contributors to talk about an album that is important to them in some way. And the distinction between, the 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 sort of difference between my favorite song or my favorite album and one that actually means something to you um or kind of has shaped your story in some way is is quite an interesting one because um if you're asked what your favorite album is you kind of leaf through the 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 part of your brain marked sort of critically acclaimed or you know like how do I impress the person I'm talking to? Well, maybe you don't. But <laughs> that kind of is often the sort of gut gut instinct. But actually, you know, when you when you're asked to uh, to think about uh, a piece of music that really means something to you, it's often you know it's often completely different.
1: Yeah, and it's often not the cool one that you want to show as uh, as your your favourite album. So it is very. I mean, we did a, a big feature on it in the Christmas issue. Yeah, sort
0: of- and 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 some of those some of those stories, like the nicest ones, were. You know George Saunders talking about being a being a teenager and listening to Yes, and kind of having an epiphany about what it means to be an artist. Yes, and he also uh, said
1: that um, wasn't it wonderful to see uh, I think a, a young person I think in, in the form of st- uh, maybe Steve Howe being able to express music so happily, yeah. which was a complete antithesis of the whole punk era and everyone being sort of pissed off and indie ish and cool and it's just like he just loved the fact that he was playing his guitar so well and looked happy while doing it and there's something about that attitude that you see in Saunders' writing mm, <laughs> you know, yes. that's, it's all, it's part of yeah, his ethos you Yeah, know?
0: yeah and you talked about um, a Paul Simon record. Yeah, you know, Rhythm
1: is? of the Saints, which was the one that came after Graceland. It was non, non-political non in the way that Graceland was political, in it, but it used musicians from South America. And it's just a kind of um, an amazing sort of hot record. You put it on and, you, and it's full of images of like lizards scuttling down cabin walls and song dogs barking at the break of dawn and lightning pushing the edge of a thunderstorm and all these amazing images. Um And it's, it's recorded with, you know, a battalion of 100 drummers and stuff. And you put it on now and you are instantly... Um, back in that family holiday that you had in 1991, uh, where you you wind the windows down in the car and just hit with a wall of hot air and stuff, and I think there there are lots of people who have a, a very visceral connection to that mm. Paul Simon record, and it's not one that's like critically talked about very much. Mm. It did very well, but you know, it's not it's no Graceland in people. It's not
0: life. lyrically, you know. It's interesting with these soul music choices because some of some of them the meaning very obviously comes from the lyrics, whereas some of them it's it's from the music. Yeah, and. and um, You know, the lyrics of Graceland are kind of so rich, but for Rhythm and Saints, it's more about
1: the music and the texture. What would you choose, do you think, if you had to choose one that was a life album rather than a favourite album?
0: I think a lot of the contributors to that feature homed in on a kind of adolescent period. And I do think that's probably where I would go to as well, because you're just sort of obsessively listening to the same albums over and over again. So, you know while it's not sort of particularly original or cool, it would probably be one of maybe three records that I just listen to obsessively on the bus to school every night going to sleep. So it, it might be like, uh, Jeff Buckley's, um, Grace, for yeah. instance, um, where, you know, every single note, you know, like the back of your hands yeah. or maybe, um, maybe Nick Drake's, uh, a pink moon. Um, I'd like to hear a soul music on, on, uh, Nick Drake's pink moon, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, weird song i was re listening to it the lyrics are almost nothing he just says repeats the phrase pink moon and i just realized in re-listening to it that i'd always misheard the first line which i always thought was uh saw it written on a suicide but it's actually just saw it written, and I saw it say, it "Doesn't even make any any sense." You made it so much darker than it was. Later, anyway. <laughs>
1: Your teenage mind.
0: Yeah. Um, so soul music is now. I looked this up, so I have information and everything. It's on Wednesdays, and it's on at nine in the morning, and also nine thirty in the evening.
1: And uh, they're currently apparently working on "Night Swimming" by REM. So if you've got a yeah. story phone the BBC, yeah, phone the BBC. making are, a good story
0: as with um or as with the brilliance of iPlayer there's there's loads of them online so you can actually kind of properly binge on this as I've been doing for the last few days So okay on anniversary this week 18 years ago is it 18 years yeah mm. 18 years ago this week what happened
1: gladiator hit the screen this is not a non-specific, uh, non-important cultural event because this was a huge cultural event.
0: Although having said that, when I told Claire my wife that we were doing Gladiator, she was like,
1: oh, great, um, can't wait.
0: And, and then uh, it, it emerged that she thought I'd, I was talking about gladiators. That's true. Well, we could do that another week.
1: That's then, and that prefigured gladiator, didn't it? Um, We went. My entire floor at university went to see this at the Odeon, Tottenham Court Road. It was the first time I laid eyes on Whack in Phoenix as the Elvis resembling, snivelling, incestuous, sadistic Commodus, um, the uh, emperor who was thought to have brought about the fall of Rome or begun the fall of Rome. I found out that Jack Gleason modelled Joffrey in Game of Thrones on Wackin' Phoenix. That makes total sense, yeah. yeah. Brilliant, brilliant performance. I think his first line in it is he runs up to um, some battlefield where extremely bloody battle has just taken place and he goes, am I too late, father? Did I miss the battle? (laughs) (laughs) And it just goes downhill from there. It's absolutely brilliant. Apparently Mel Gibson was offered the lead role of uh, uh, Maximus, Russell Russell Crowe's part, Hmm. and turned it down because he said he was too old. Hmm. Thank God it wasn't Mel Gibson. Yeah, no. that would have been a totally different... Totally
0: different film. Yeah. Uh, was that pre or post Braveheart? I get p- post Braveheart. I, I think it was just post Braveheart. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess maybe that made him the obvious choice for another sort of saw, sword-wielding historical figure. I've just got one sort of interesting fact about Gladiator. Shall I do it now? Or do, do it now. Do, yeah, which I discovered when I was... Um, this isn't... Other people know this. It's not knowledge that only I am privy to. But um, when I interviewed Nick Cave a few years ago, I was um, reading his novels and doing a bit of bit of research, and um, I discovered that he had written a script for uh, a sequel to Gladiator, Gladiator Two. Russell Crowe had approached Nick Cave direct- wow. directly to write the sequel, and. Nick cave sort of said yeah I'm kind of interested didn't but didn't didn't you die you know didn't you die at the end did I miss the ending or what wasn't that you die um and he's like uh yeah yeah you you worked that out so cave wrote this uh I mean I I wonder whether there's a there's a version of this circulating somewhere in in, in Hollywood but cave wrote a version of this where the Maximus character goes down to purgatory and then the gods are are all dying out because this christ figure has come come to earth wow. and the the uh, the many sort of greek and roman gods are um are really suffering and so they send maximus down to kill christ oh my god <laughs> and his followers it's, was
1: christ going to be played by <laughs> mel gibson
0: cave wanted so was, this is going to be called gladiator 2 christ killer <laughs>
1: No. Yes. Is that real? Yeah.
0: Well, this is what Nick Cave says anyway. Maybe he's having us all on. But <laughs> Russell Crowe's talked about it as well, and Ridley Scott. Crowe was um, sorry, come. Then the bit I always remember for this is like, so that's the kind of setup. And then he becomes this sort of eternal, like endlessly replicating warrior. And so the last twenty minutes of Cave's script has him, this Maximus character, just fighting in every war in history, like up to Vietnam. Anyway, Ridley wow. Scott said it was it was a brilliant piece of work, but no one would ever but no one would ever, w- touch would ever it. It.
1: so I, I found out that um Russell Crowe was continually unhappy with the uh, the screenplay by William Nicholson, and he kept rewriting parts of it, and he would strop off the set and there was there's a famous line in there where he goes, "I will have my vengeance in this life or the next." and he initially refused to say it. Um, and he told William Nicholson, your lines are garbage, but I'm the greatest actor in the world and I can make even garbage sound good. And I thought, so what else did William Nicholson do? Because this obviously wasn't a very good relationship between the pair of them. William Nicholson did the screenplay for Les Miserables, which Russian Crustle Crow was the lead in. So this, you maybe they that... actually love each other. Yeah. This is just a kind of eternal fight between the two of them throughout their careers. But yeah, I don't think he was particularly easy to get on with. I just want to watch it again now but it is it's it's long and I think that in now that I'm in the age of two screening or three screening I'm not sure if I could uh, focus for the entire time. You
0: focus. It's uh, yeah, the, I I watched I rewatched the ending I have to say which is uh, his death scene where it kind of goes into this sort of Instagram filter world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of the the ancient it's a lot uh, of blue filter wheat there. fields of uh, of Elysium where he goes and meets his uh, his wife and children.
1: I think it invented the slow motion battle as well. Did it? Yeah, like the the, the opening battle scene is in a field in right. Surrey that was set for deforestation and Surrey Council were just like, you can burn it if you want. <laughs> so they just slashed it and burned it. And for some reason it became blurry. So they then turned it into slow motion, but it was right. an accident or something. And then you just see that everywhere now and you see the, they also they also thought, and I've heard some rock star say this the other day, that the Colosseum was too small So that's why they CGI'd it. They were disappointed by this puny little costume. I'll tell you where you saw that. Where was that?
0: You saw it in a review that we published in the New Statesman magazine, which we both work on, (laughs) of... The memoir of Yu God of the Wu Tang Clan, that and he was goes it. to the, he go, There's one bit where he goes to the Coliseum and he's just he just writes about how disappointing it was. He thought it was going to be massive, but it was more like a little league stadium. Well, he's something. not the <laughs> only
1: one because Ridley Scott was disappointed, so that's why they build this massive one. And to this day, people who go to see the Coliseum are disappointed because they've seen Gladiator. They think it's going to look like that. Yeah, that,
0: and he specifically referenced Gladiator. He's like, I, I was on this this Hollywood idea of what the Coliseum looked like. <laughs> So it's done a lot of damage. It's lies. Thing. It's just post-truth began with, with Gladiator in May 2000. Um, but I think we're probably both going to go away and re- mm. we watch we it. We had
1: the soundtrack on CD.
0: Hans dee, Zimmer. Dee, yeah. Dee, dee. Yeah. yeah, It's a good working soundtrack, actually. We often okay. talk about working music, but yeah, because it's the it's
1: the sort gladiator. of shapeless singing as well, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 Happy non-anniversary at Gladiator. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Do get in touch on Twitter, rate us on iTunes, listen to the other New Statesman podcasts. We have been edited by our podcast supremo, Caroline Crampton. And I want to leave you with Hans Zimmer's score to Gladiator, mm. but I think a very, very close second best to that.
1: Is the musical Kickin' the Balls that is Pistol Jazz and Godspeed.